0: So uh, today's message is just simply entitled, Make Haste Slowly. And I, I want to just uh, begin with this this image. This, this image is an old uh, Roman emblem. It's where we get the classical adage, Festina Lente. Um, and literally translated, it means, Make Haste Slowly. Uh, and it means, um, its meaning lies in this paradox of existence that Existence is not meant to be static, nor careless, but is defined by conscious, uh, conscientious, and careful movement. That you know, the, the classic statement uh, is: "Is be still and know that I am God." and And people love that phrase, "Be still." But I think a, probably a more robust biblical vision would be be still but don't stop be still but but keep going learn how to 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 hear the still soft voice of god but understand that that god is a god who is always moving outward into the world and i think the tendency within modern culture and the modern world and I know my own tendency at least in my darkest moments is the Tendency to not move out but to move in to, to travel inward into the paralyzing uh, reality of over-examination and extreme analysis We are told in scripture to examine ourselves, but man let those gazes into the one's own soul be brief And let our gaze upon Jesus be long and regular. (laughs) You know, it was Henry David Thoreau who wrote his final essay. And I really actually loathe Thoreau. I find him pretentious. I don't find him compelling. And I don't really like his writing because I don't like any writing really before the beginning of the 20th century. um, Other than the Bible. Uh, That's not true. But but for the most part, it's true. Um, but Thoreau, I, Th- Thoreau's pretentiousness was this idea that the ideal life is life alone. And in his essay on walking, he, he makes this statement that he has only met a few a few people in his whole life that understood the art of sauntering. But for him, the idea of walking was kind of this agrarian ideal. and And the the idea is that, that the, the, true, the true thinker is the one who, who leaves the world, uh, leaves the world of people and, and discovers the power or that, that divinity within oneself. It was, it was very much a part of the transcendental movement, which is that God really resides within us. And we can't discover that in the noise of the world. We've got to be alone with our thoughts. We have to be alone. We have to get away from the people. But I would argue that the walk of Scripture is something utterly different than that. In fact, the first time that the word walk appears in the Bible is actually in Genesis after the fall. And we are told that our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve in the shame of of rebelling against God's sovereign rule, uh, had become aware of their own nakedness. And in their shame, they hid from one another and they hid from God. And we're told that God, God was heard walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And when we think of what God was doing, the walk that God was engaged in was not the one who is walking off his frustration or airing his anger. You know, some of you, I don't know if you go for walks when you're frustrated to clear your mind uh, and, and it's like, I just got to get away from everyone. I need to go clear my mind. I'll be back in a few minutes. No, this was not that kind of walk. This was the walk of a concerned parent who is, who is moving toward children who are playing with that which is dangerous. It's the, it's the movement of a, of a father whose heart is broken that, that his kids have turned from the light toward darkness. It is a God who literally is putting himself right in front of the greatest dilemma of human existence, which is sin. And for all of those that have proclaimed through time that, that God cannot be in the presence of sin, that is is the most uh, foolish and least biblical thing one can say because from Genesis to Revelation, God is continually getting into the mess of it without ever being tainted by it. Doing something about it. Putting himself right in front of it. Instead of starting over, which he could have done, for he created everything out of nothing. No, instead he said, this something I have created out of nothing is worth fixing and we can't ever understand or comprehend the mystery of why God is concerned with moving toward a people that continually turn their backs on him I can't tell you why God loves you all I can say is that he is seems to be from from at least from my reading of the Bible and my own personal experience not content to exist without you And that is a beautiful truth. Now this walk that God made was a walk directly into the brokenness of human existence. And I think that that is what the Christian walk is. It is not a life of of separation from the world. But it is a life that is devoted to Christ and walking with him into the midst of its very discomfort. In fact, all of our desires to escape all of the insanity uh, that has been all around us and the reason people have moved away so quickly and say, I want to go to places where there's less garbage happening, literally less garbage happening. Uh, I believe that if Jesus was to take us on a walk, he would not lead us to a place of our natural choosing That he'd probably more likely lead me down the street to the homeless camps that were around Sunnyside that aren't there right now But I'm sure we'll be back soon enough Then he would lead me to a vacation in Costa Rica and naturally even as a a truly uh, Spiritually sensitive man that I am I would still pick Costa Rica because that is the default setting of the human heart especially in our culture a culture that does everything it can to avoid pain and suffering and yet jesus said very clearly listen in this world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer for i have overcome the world it's not the 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 christian life is not the removal of of difficulty The peace that Jesus offers is not respite from suffering, it is respite in the midst of suffering. The peace that Jesus offers is not the removal of mixture, it is he himself who is our peace living in and through us who is mixture. And that is a beautiful thing. So we need this image, the image of the crab and the butterfly. And I'm I, curious if you guys understand the purpose of that image because the, the picture is, is one that I, I find, it, it makes me uneasy um, because the butterfly seems to be held back by the crab clamping down on its wings. And it is a necessary reminder um, that our movement must be anchored in thoughtfulness. That our movement... Um, as Jesus says, follow me, must be anchored in something that that gives us equilibrium. And I like to think of, if we think of the butterfly almost as, as for us as Christians, as a symbol, uh, which actually is, the butterfly has been historically used as a symbol in the church as a picture of resurrection or metamorphosis, uh, transformation. If anyone be in Christ, they are new creation. There is no as far as I could find, any historical evidence that the crab has ever been used by the church as any, as any particular symbol, and understandably so. They really are kind of disturbing-looking creatures. But I think that the idea in this adage of the crab as being an anchoring force, we could say, for us, that would be the cross. If the Spirit leads us and guides us and directs us, our ability to test the spirit um, because there's more than one spirit working for our attention. I promise you that. We are all, we are all students of the spirit of this age. Uh, and we are told that, there is the, that the spirit of the air works amongst the sons of disobedience. And as much as I'd like to think the sons of disobedience are just those out there that don't know Jesus... I know that I can be a son of disobedience like nobody's business, so I I know that I am prone to to listen to the wrong spirit from time to time. The spirit of Christ will always bring us back to the foot of the cross, and the foot of the cross will always remind us that without Jesus we're lost, and therefore I see it as the true anchoring um, of the life that makes haste but does it with, with a conscientiousness that is aware of its surroundings. So, there are three passages that I, I want us to consider, all from Ephesians chapter 5, um, that I think give us three facets of what this walk should look like. The first is that our walk should be a, a walk in love. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God but sexually immorale, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints let there be no filthiness no foolish talk nor crude joking which is out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving for you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and god it's very easy to read this at a surface level that it seems like paul begins by saying hey walk in love just as jesus has loved us and and what we're told is that we love god only because he first loved us that that our ability to know god is because god has already moved toward us in christ that that the gospel is not a ladder of us doing certain things to reach God, but that no, the gospel is God come down to earth. The gospel is earthy. It's down to earth. It's, it's meant for the broken person. It's meant for the idolater. It's meant for the sexually immoral. So what is Paul saying here? Because it, here we're told that love should be the, the supreme motivation of the Christian life, but then he goes into this whole list of things not to do. Don't be sexually immoral. Don't be impure. Don't be covetous. Don't, don't engage in foolish talk or crude joking. The only funny joking is crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, and everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You know, it was John Calvin himself who said that the human heart is an idol factory. That the moment you pull up one idol, it simply reveals a string of a thousand more. So, is Calvin contradicting what Paul is saying and saying, listen, you are an idolater, so get over it? Was Luther... Contradicting Paul when he said, Be a sinner and sin boldly. Because here, it looks to me like Jesus says, Listen, the Christian life is marked by love, but it is a love that is untainted by these things. So don't do these things. And what we find ourselves is right back to the very ladders that exhausted us in the first place. No, that's not what Paul is saying. What what Paul is saying is, is this, is that Christ himself is the perfect one, that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that it is through our daily death with him that his life, is able to be manifested in and through us who is mixture who is we are without Christ immoral idolaters we are without Christ all of the things within this list but the question is is, is what will be the defining thrust of each day will it be josh That old nature that supposedly died with Christ, me, like my first parents, deciding for myself what is right and what is wrong, or will I yield myself in all of my mixture, in all of my brokenness to Christ so that his love can be that which takes supremacy in my life? See, Paul is very wisely playing on a paradox here that the goal of the Christian life is not to sin less, but it's to love more. See, I believe that walking in love is, not, is, is the answer, not walking in purity. And what I mean by that because I do believe we're to walk in purity, but I would want to define what I mean by purity versus what you might have in your mind. Because for us, the idea of walking in purity is not doing a list of things that we think make us not pure. And I always say, you can be pure wine and not be good wine. I believe that when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, that purity is defined by a single-minded Direct focus or giving of oneself to the fullness of who Jesus is. It is a devotion to Christ because what Christ wants from us is not perfect lives because he knows that's impossible and if it was possible he wouldn't have come. This is why he said to the young rich ruler who seemed to live very morally upright, he says to him, Good teacher. By which Jesus responds, why do you call me good? There is no one who is good but God. And what is he saying to that young rich ruler? You're not good and I'm God. And here we find that our call and the capacity has been given to us because we have the spirit within us. Is that the spirit is the conduit by which the very love of Christ can be manifested in and through our lives. And the more fully we believe we are loved and we respond to that love, the more fully we will reflect Jesus. And these other things that will continue to be a reality in our own lives and in the life around us will become, will become muted by the, the brightness of Christ's love, so the question is, is, does Christ himself maintain the dominance over what you do daily or are you continuing to control the outcome of your day? And if you're like me, when I look at the days in which I am in control of the outcome, I'm generally not very happy with what I find there. The beautiful good news is that that's okay. Okay. Because as I like to encourage you week after week, you're not a bigger failure than God already knows you are. And as Eugene Peterson said, when it comes down to it, you can look at the Enneagram all day long, but the only number that we really are is zeros. And and a string of zeros is what God finds because he looks down from heaven to see if there is anyone who understands and there is no one who understands. And this is why it took God coming into the darkness, into the bondage, into the blindness, and illuminating the truth of what we are apart from him. And this is why the cross is so beautiful and why it must be central if we are to understand what it means to walk in love. Because to walk in love means to die to the flesh and to say yes to the spirit. Someone has been, at, I've, I've been asked multiple times of, because I put so much emphasis on radical grace, and I honestly don't believe you can put enough emphasis on grace because the world does not get it. We totally get law. We understand law. We, we love to work for the things that we receive. Now, it's true, there may be many in this room that are lazy, but there's still something deeply offensive about the idea that you have not a single thing to give to God that he needs other than your glitchy, broken self, and because of that, we feel better about not doing A, B, C, and D than we feel about simply yielding to the finished work of Jesus that by his spirit he might live fully in us and through us. And so here we see that the love of God becomes the supreme motivation of the Christian life and if we want to understand where does our sanctification um, what what manifests our sanctification it is this surrender to love and why does Paul put an emphasis I think it's interesting there are only two things that we're told to flee from in scripture and that is sexual immorality and idolatry and they're both serious things And I think that the sexual immorality piece is easy because we have the interpretation of why that is such a crucial issue in the church. And it seems to be a crucial issue in the church. Read Revelation and Jesus' words to the church how many of the churches had actually given in to sexual immorality. And I don't think that we live in an age that's very different. Because when we think about the plague of pornography in the church today... When we think about the the destruction and the hypersexualization of of humanity, it, it is not surprising that sexual immorality would be a a, a a subject of focus or emphasis when when the writers of Scripture talk about the outworking of sin, because sexual immorality is taking the beauty of what God created, which is sexual creatures and utilizing the good thing that God made in a way that actually dishonors its beauty and dishonors the very vessel that engages in it because sexual immorality is built upon upon a self-centered love that brings harm to the very temple of God which is why we are told to flee from sexual immorality. He says because all other sins, Paul writes, are outside of the body. But, but sexual immorality is actually violating God's very home. Now, we don't think about that. When we engage in sexual immorality, we are literally subjecting the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a gift if we have been born again. We are grieving the spirit by holding him hostage to the very thing that he, that he through Jesus died for. (laughs) It is a, it is a, it is a horrifying thing to think of the things that we are willing to subject Christ who has made his home in us to because of self-absorption and the willingness to pretend at least in that moment that Jesus does not actually abide in me or with me. But if we really walked with God, we would know that the God of love is the greatest gift that God can give and the deepest satisfaction. And that every longing of the human heart, which even, I believe, sexual immorality flows out of real and honest longings within the human heart that have just become distorted. It's our attempt to satisfy real Longings, real desires that are not bad desires, but desires that have become become distorted, have 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 lost their shape, if you will. They and those desires can be distorted from trauma from our past. They can be distorted by the by the 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 intensity of the world in which we live and the continual voices of culture that are that are trying to Trying to get us to believe continually lies. Which is that your life is your own. And you should have the freedom. Real freedom means that you should have the ability to do whatever you want. But Paul shows us again and again through his writing. And I would argue all the New Testament writers do. That sin enslaves and the gospel is about liberation. And to live as a bondservant to Jesus, is to be set free by the only good master you will ever have. Because if you want to continue to be in control of your life and give yourself to these things, what Paul says, and I I think it's dangerous to try to read into this, anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, is that that's about who's saved and who's not saved. Because... I'm sorry, I'm not convinced there isn't a person in here that isn't sexually immoral, impure, or covetous that is an idolater at some point almost in every, give, in every single day. It Doesn't mean that I don't believe that there isn't victory over sin, but I also know that there is continual failure in it because even the victories that I have over sin often can give birth to new sin, like pride over the fact that I had victory over that sin. That's why battling sin in a fallen world is like playing whack-a-mole and that's why the only hope is not by checking your boxes at what you're not doing but you will do these things less when Jesus is given more attention and greater focus and I believe that that is what it means to walk in love is to give the one who is love our full attention it is just daily, say, Lord, I am that thing. And that's why I need you, who is the one, the only one who lived the life that I could never live, that any of us could live. Be that life in and through me. Remind me I am loved and give me the capacity to love. The more I engage in the love of the gospel, I always say that the safest thing I can be doing is actually serving Christ and the least safe thing I can be doing is spending too much time alone in my own head. (laughs) I'm I'm with Luther. I distrust, um, I distrust solitude. It seems to be the devil's playground as this last few weeks have shown me. I feel like I've been uh, in the midst of continual spiritual warfare as the, uh, nothing like sickness in a family where everyone's together but everyone is s- sick enough to feel completely alone and self-absorbed and self-pitying in their frustration over how they feel except for my wife. She, n- she never is self-absorbed and which that also frustrates me because when you're sick you should be self-absorbed. Um. <laughs> Secondly, we need to walk in light Ephesians 5, 6-14, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, for at one time you were darkness, not you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I love that. Try and discern what is pleasing. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them it is shameful to even speak of those things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible in the light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is a really powerful passage and one that can be quickly misinterpreted. That the responsibility of the Christian is to go around and shine flashlights on other people's sin. And I think that what it means to walk in the light is this, is, and this is the honest-to-God truth for me. I stand firmly in the tradition of, of uh, Oswald Chambers who once said that it is not possible to truly know what sin is unless one has been born again. And the more fully we come into the light, the more fully we see how sinful we ourselves are. Which is why Jesus said, be careful when you judge, lest you be judged with the same judgment that you judge. For you should remove the log out of your own eye before you try to remove the sliver out of your brother's eye. I recognize that the more I push into Jesus, the more fundamentally sinful I see myself apart from him. That is why I think it is a beautiful and freeing thing to say, hi, my name is Josh, I am a sinner. Because a saint is just a sinner that's been forgiven. And a saint is a sinner that often even finds forgiven sins still things that cause them problems. And I think that what we do is we take a passage that says, you know, you should be watching for the darkness in other people. And that's true. Within the church, we are to watch for wolves. We, I, as a preacher, it is a responsibility of mine to, to speak to error and to, and to protect. We should be protecting one another. Um, from the realities and the lies that we are consistently being inundated with. And this is why Christians who say, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church, never last very long because we cannot live the Christian lives alone. We need one another. We need to be able to speak the truth in love to one another. But we utilize that phrase, speak the truth in love, in very unfortunate ways, which is it's, it's a... Christianized way of making excuses for unhealthy judgment of others when we are incapable of seeing the sin in ourselves because we aren't walking in the light. We're trying to be the source of our own light. Defining for ourselves what others are doing that is wrong to make ourselves feel better about the lack of progress in our own lives. I think this is one of the most maddening aspects of the law of mixture. The fact that everything I do, even in the power of the Spirit, is still, at the end of the day, mixture. And, if, and this is why all of creation groans, and it can't be escaped without escaping life itself. And wrestling with the truth of mixture is not for the faint of heart. And without Jesus, it can be a source of anxiety, anxiety, and despair because humanity believes in the, in, in the very essence of, of our hearts that life is always a gift and at the exact same time, none of us feel like we are where we ought to be. We all want to be more and the same. And that is a, a crushing Reality, But for those that have experienced the saving life of Jesus, it actually is the source of our greatest freedom. Because what Jesus reveals to us is exactly. You are trapped. You will never be everything that you want to be because of this thing called sin. It's the whole reason I came. And God takes the thing that is not of him nor does it come from him, and yet he utilizes a thing that is totally contrary to his nature, sin, he who knew no sin became sin. He utilizes the very thing that is contrary to him, the very thing that keeps us from him. That thing becomes the very vehicle by which he brings redemption to us and brings us back into right relationship. See, walking in the light is coming to terms with what we are apart from Christ, which is what causes us to cast ourselves in total dependence upon him so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And to shine the light on darkness, expose it wherever it is found. Listen, if everyone in this room began by actually allowing the light of Christ and the spirit of Christ to expose within ourselves the things that hinder our ability to know Jesus and to love others, we would be a church that brings literal revival to Portland. But we are so afraid of being exposed that it's much easier to point out the problems in others. There's a really horrific show on t- television that I love um, <laughs> because I'm mixture and you shouldn't watch it because it's so deeply offensive. It's, it's called Succession. Um, and, uh, and I love it. I realize I love it. For, I'm just confessing. I love this show. I freaking love this show. And it's so foul. These people are the worst human beings on the planet and that's why I love it. Because they make me feel not so bad. I'm like, you know, there's always someone worse. Thank you, Jesus, for this show. (laughs) But walking in the light is saying, maybe there isn't someone worse. And maybe it is that God is wanting to remind me again and again of my own desperate need for him. And he allows me to experience the discomfort of my own brokenness, of the darkness that still remains within me. And rooms will remain dark in the house of your soul if you don't give Jesus access to them. He is not forceful when it comes to control over your life sometimes he is and he has the sovereign freedom sometimes he may smash you to the ground like Paul but what we're told in Romans is quite terrifying it says therefore God gave them over he gave them over to what they wanted and it's not what he wanted for them and like a, a father whose heart's broken that a child he can't stop his child from being a heroin addict And there's a point where you just have to release them to that thing and pray that that they come to an end of themselves and return. I think that that often happens in our lives is that there are points where God just says, fine, you're going to want to be your own God. I'm going to give you over to that. And I'm going to do it because I love you. Because real love requires a relational freedom, and it's a freedom that only God can grant, but the moment he grants us that freedom, we need to understand that freedom is fragile and we can make a mess of it. And walking in the light is being honest with how we utilize that freedom. How we can keep certain parts of our lives in the dark. I've been struck by this um, again and again. I, I I was writing about this the other day, about this law of mixture, and God just put this on my heart, that we can't come into the light without being exposed, and one of the great and painful lessons that I am still learning is that the victory I have in Christ is not the conquering of my vi- mixture, but it is that the victory I have in Christ is the victorious Christ himself working in and through my mixture because in his loving freedom he chooses to do so and the question that I must ask daily is am I willing to actually surrender to his willingness to work in me in spite of me and what he's wanting from me is not me to fix myself what he is wanting from me is the same thing he wants from you he just wants you what pleases God Notice this, learn what it, what pleases him, what pleases him is when his children look up and recognize that he's there. Finally, we must walk in wisdom, which is another way of saying we must be filled with the Spirit. Says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Notice that make haste slowly is is at play here. It is it is a there's a wisdom in the movement. It's the ability to take that's why I say the difference between walking and running is that running can push you into your head because it's uncomfortable and it's hard to sustain unless you're some kind of marathon runner. But if you're running, the faster you're moving, the more likely you are to miss the details of the surroundings. A walk is motion without strife. It's something that most of us can do and take for granted. uh, and But it allows us, it's much easier to maintain. I remember going for a run actually with Seth Mercer. uh, And he's a runner and I'm not. And the whole time It was my first time. It was one of the first times we ever hung out, and and he's he runs all the time. So he's trying to talk to me the whole time we're running, and all I could think was. Jesus, please make this man stop talking to me because I'm going to, all I want to do is just get through this run and not throw up. And I think I was running in jean shorts too or something really inappropriate, <laughs> which made it even extra uncomfortable. And he was like asking me theological questions. I'm like, this is not the thing we do when one talks. <laughs> I'm like, it was just, I was so winded. And I think we were running really slow. I mean, it was almost a walk, but. But I, I think that this is, this is the thing with a walk, that, that a walk allows us to truly take in the surroundings, to truly engage with the one that we are walking with. But it's not static, it's movement. And here it says, look carefully then how you walk and be, don't be unwise with the time. The time is all we have. And often we can live in this place, especially in a time of COVID, where all we can think about is, I just want to get through this time so we can get back to life. But friends, I'm sorry, we're on year three. This is life. It's life right now. And the lens by which we look at that is going to define how wisely we spend the time. And this time that we are in, whatever this time is, I would argue that it is the end of the age I'm comfortable saying that because I believe the end of the age began the moment the eternal word became flesh. Uh, But nonetheless, we are told that there will be a day when the Son of Man will return. And the great hope of the Christian life is that the best is yet to come and that Jesus will return and put right what is wrong in the world. And we are closer today than we were yesterday. And the fact is, is that when we look at Jesus' own words in the Olivet Discord, and he says, at the end of the age, in the last days, the love of many will grow cold and many will abandon their faith. Have we seen an abandonment of faith in the church even in the last 50 years like we have in the last two? We haven't. Most churches have been reduced by 50%. It's insane. It's insane. But at the same time, Jesus also says in that same paragraph in Matthew 24 that the gospel will go around the world and that many will come to faith. And we've also seen an unbelievable season of people coming to a saving faith in Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing and an exciting thing to be a part of. But when I think about the fact that people are abandoning their faith, what that tells me is that there's something fundamentally problematic about our theology our ideas about what God is like and the frustration that we feel at the lack of position that we are in we thought we would be free if I put my faith in Jesus I thought this wouldn't be a problem anymore I think that we have been given a false theology that promises something that it cannot provide because it's not anything that Jesus ever promised which is a pain-free existence it also is not, is not something that Jesus promised, which so many believe, even though we may not go to the extremes of, of, of some groups, and what I was referred to as the prosperity gospel, that prosperity gospel is still very much alive, even within conservative evangelical churches, because in the West, we do believe we deserve to live without suffering, I mean, look at the books in the Christian market that are the top sellers in the West. Most of these books have nothing to say to the believer in a place like India, where in a caste system, there is no opportunity for them to be anything other than what they are, forever. And yet, self-help seems to be the MO that has filled the pew. But now that people aren't finding help in it, they're just walking away and saying, Jesus isn't real. And I think that this is deeply problematic because too much of our Christian faith has been built upon keeping bored Christians interested rather than preaching Christ and Him crucified and counting the costs and saying, will we follow Him or not follow Him? To walk in wisdom is this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine... Notice what Paul is utilizing here is wine as a thing that it is. It is an influencer. It changes the way that we interact with one another. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We can be, we can escape f- through alcohol, through drugs, through sex, through our entertainment, we can escape through a whole plethora of things we're we're masterful at keep at creating modes of escape from the nagging voice of conscience but i like what paul utilizes here as he says listen wine f- being filled with wine brings debauchery in other words when we escape through anything other than the filling of the holy spirit naturally, we diminish what it means to be human. And if any of you, like me, knows what it's like to have been drunk, uh, you know how quickly it can embolden one, but embolden one in such a way that 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 emboldened reality becomes a source of unbelievable embarrassment the next day as you are nursing your headache. And you're asking the question, did I say that? Yes, I... I think I might have done naked cartwheels last night in front of a large group of people. I'm just gonna say that that may or may not have happened when I was 19 years old. Um, Many things that... I'm positive did not lead people into the light, but are still to this day bringing great darkness into their minds. (laughs) It's been the outcome of being under the influence of this thing called alcohol. And it is terrifying to think of. Alcohol almost becomes something personified when one gets drunk enough that you did all kinds of things that actually you have no memory of. Because I'm like, if I don't remember it, but I did it, who was doing it? And that's, uh, I'm like I, don't like, I don't like where that leads me inside, but it makes me uncomfortable. But to be filled with the Spirit is also to be filled with an influence. It is, to be, it is to be filled with one who wants to guide us and direct us, to embolden us, but to embolden us in a way in which we are able to be conduits of love in spite of the lovelessness of the world in which we live. To be filled with the Spirit is, is the ultimate wisdom for Christ himself is wisdom personified and the Spirit's primary role is to redirect us and bring to our minds and bring to our attention the very things that Jesus said, who is the Word, and, it says, and he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. There is no greater wisdom than lifting up Christ so that the world can see him and be drawn to him and to be saved by him. There is no greater wisdom to be spirit-filled. I love this. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always. Isn't it fascinating that what do you have... What do you have at bars like your classic vision of a of a think of a pub in ireland uh you know in 1902 what 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 did everybody do you drank and you did what you sang bar tunes you sang songs together that that the alcohol made the heart merry in a communal sense and and so you have these swinging slurring songs of celebration A little freedom from the anguish and agony of existence for just an evening. But the church is to be a a magnificent representation of true community under the absolute influence of another, the Spirit, who does not rob us of our personal identities, but infuses with us in such a way that that we are each uniquely gifted to be a part of one body by which we celebrate together the fact that no matter how dark the days are, God is still good. And so, to walk with God then is to be defined by a patient progress and an intimate communion as we participate in his redemptive history. And if you're like me, you may find yourself thinking, I'm not good company, and what possibly do I have to offer? And as I've already said, my friend, it's just simply yourself. He chooses, he chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. And Door of Hope has never been anything other than a motley crew. It's sort of its gift. I was writing about our early history I was thinking about just the silly days of early Door of Hope, you know, because it was silly days in Portland at the peak of, you know, Portlandia hipsterdom, you know, when every wedding was marked by the groomsmen getting axes that they'll never use and had mustaches that they shouldn't have worn. Um, You know, the days of dumpster diving when it wasn't safe to eat the pastries at the church. That actually was a thing. I remember grabbing one one day, and someone ran up to me and like, "Don't don't eat that, that was got that was pulled out of the out of the dumpster at at, at Little T Bakery." I'm like, "Oh, really? That's disgusting." And why did he bring it? Is this he's just trying to bless you? I think about its history and the thing that made those early days so exciting and I believe what's making the days that we're in right now so exciting is that there was a rawness and, and a desire to, to truly know Jesus. To see young people sitting at coffee shops in Hawthorne with their Bibles in their hands, you know, reading their Bibles in, in public to, to discover the joy of what it means to be a conduit of grace and to believe that Jesus actually is the answer to the dilemmas of human existence and to believe that tenaciously and to believe that in spite of the mess that I am as a human being that God wants to use a messy person like me and he wants me to walk with him and he will walk with me into the world that he died for is a powerful transformative thing. You know what made the Jesus movement so so compelling was that it was a movement outside of denominations in the midst of a group of people that the church actually viewed as unsavable. And let me just tell you, when I go to other places in the nation and I talk about Door of Hope, People literally are amazed that Jesus would save anybody in a city as lame as Portland. I'm not joking. When I just received an email of a guy that said, I want you to know I'm from Texas and I'm a proud Texan. And I'm just going to say, my view of Portland has not been high. <laughs> but my son has moved there and I came across... A video uh, and it was a documentary that I did with Tim Mackey um, uh, last summer around what does it look like to maintain orthodoxy in a city like Portland and he said the biblical centeredness, the gospel centeredness and the humility of, of calling people to be honest about their brokenness and to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus without wavering on on the claims of the gospel was so refreshing honestly it was just convicting because I had stopped believing that God could work in a place like that you guys that was the Jesus movement I believe that God wants to bring forth another revival but we need to be a people that actually walk with him And maybe we won't see the revival Although I believe we will We could prevent it from happening in the future We need to be a people that pray Our weapons are prayer And and confession and, And the word of God And the spirit's presence in our lives And we need to be a people that are honest about our brokenness That we are to walk in love and in light and in wisdom, which means that we are simply to be a people surrendered to the one who is the light of the world, who is love personified and who is wisdom and that is Jesus himself and he accomplishes that by his spirit within us. To be spirit filled means the spirit having more of you, not you getting more of the spirit. To be spirit-filled is the spirit having control of every arena of your life. This is the joy of the Christian life. And this is the call that God has placed upon us. And I pray that this would be a year that Door of Hope truly walks with God. Amen. Let's pray.